I think we've all had the experience of running across a childhood toy or a photograph or having a conversation with a childhood friend who makes you think of another childhood friend who hasn't popped into your head in a long time. That happened to me recently. I'm originally from West Texas, and my dad was in the oil business. He was an exploration geologist. I was born in Amarillo, way up in the Panhandle, but we moved all over the place following the oil. Most of our moves were in and around the Permian Basin, one of the largest oil-producing formations in the world. In fact, when we moved overseas when I was 13, that was our 14th move since I was born. Before I turned 13, when we got transferred to Spain, we lived in the town of Midland, In fact, we lived there four times, sandwiched in between moves to Dalhart and Oklahoma City and Houston. The first time we moved there, I met Eddie Cottom. He lived a few blocks away, and we became friends. Now, two things about Eddie. First, he was a pretty skilled magician, which was amazing considering that we were in the seventh grade. I can still picture his bedroom and all that magic stuff on the shelves and the tricks he used to do. But there was something else that long-term was even more important. Eddie introduced me to a series of adventure books written by a guy named Kenneth Robeson. By the way, many years later, I learned that Kenneth Robinson never existed. He was the fictitious house name used by a collection of in-house authors who wrote the Doc Savage books as well as the Avengers series. Another author who wrote under the name was Philip Jose Farmer as well as a guy named Lester Dent. The star of the books that I read, most of which were in fact written by Dent, was Doc Savage, a larger-than-life character who traveled the world helping people in trouble, always with his five best friends. He had limitless money, and airplanes, and a submarine, and a secret fortress somewhere in the Arctic. If the Avengers had been around at the time, he would have been a founding member. He and Tony Stark would have been buds. Anyway, there were dozens of books in the series, and they all took place somewhere between the First and Second World Wars. I loved them. I owned every one of them. A few weeks ago, I was digging through a box in the basement looking for something, and I found one of the Doc Savage books, a little bantam paperback. It was called The Phantom City, and it took place somewhere in the Arab world, perhaps in what is now Oman or Yemen. I sat down in the basement, and I read it in one sitting and it was every bit as good as it was when I read it as a teenager. Anyway, Eddie Cottom turned me on to the Doc Savage books, something for which I will be forever grateful. They were the first quasi-adult stories I read that allowed me to travel in my mind, and they played a big part in me becoming a storyteller, a writer, and a traveler. Finding that book made me think of Eddie, so I went looking for him. We hadn't spoken since 1968, so you can imagine how happy I was to find him online. Thank you, LinkedIn. I sent him a message, and he was just as happy and surprised as I was. Now, here's the weird thing. We've had eerily similar careers or career elements in a lot of ways. I'll let him tell the story, but you're going to want to hear it. Here's Ed. I'm I'm not going to call him Eddie anymore. Well, I guess I would say I'm a, a guy living in Houston, Texas, who's interested in a whole lot of different things. And my wife would tell you that I'm, I'm interested in way too many different things, but I, I never met anything that I, I, I found uninteresting. And it's, I enjoy making connections between things. That's the way I would describe it. I, I, I like taking things apart and figuring out how they work and then trying to tweak it a little bit and say, if you did something a little different, what would that mean? And, you know, that that's made me interested in things as wildly as different as quantum mechanics and 
Civil War battlefield history. And, and I, I think that's what kind of makes me tick is, is that I'm interested in a lot of different subjects and I like to find ways to combine things. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, as you know, from our earlier conversations, one of the things I love to do is talk to people who have had what I call nonlinear careers. You know, they're not just the H&R Block Junior accountant. They're somebody that's done all these different things. And it's not because they had to, it's because they want to. They have a passion, a curiosity for all the things that, like you just mentioned, you know, from quantum mechanics to Civil War battlefields. And I'm sure somewhere along the way, you're going to tie those together for me. <laughs> so t- tell me a little bit about your background. Start kind of with kind of where we met and work, work your way through to kind of where you are now. I grew up in, in West Texas in a, in a town called Midland, and Midland is in the heart of the Permian Basin. It's the heart of oil country. At, at one point, I think when uh, I was living there, there were more millionaires per capita in Midland than any other city in the world. And of course, that's where Steve uh, and I met because we were both kind of kids of the oil patch and our, our parents and everybody we knew worked in the business in some way or another. And it was it was a really interesting place to grow up just because this turned out to be the place that was the model for Friday night lights on TV. Football was king. And if you didn't have enough people to play regular football with 11 people on each side, we played six-man football with, with uh, six people on each side. And it, it was a really interesting place to grow up, not from the standpoint of there being a lot of entertainment options. I mean, I remember we only had one television channel in Midland when we were growing up, but it, it was a, a nice place to grow up. And then from there, my father got transferred to Houston. So we, we moved to Houston. I went to the University of Houston, got a bachelor's degree there in economics, and then went to the University of Chicago and got a master's degree there in economics and returned to Texas for, for law school. And uh, I became a lawyer for a few years. But fortunately, I wised up on that and, and quit doing that and, and moved over to uh, work for a guy that I, I knew down here who was really big in the, in the oil business at that time, became his general counsel, then started managing all of his investments. And that led to the creation of a large charitable foundation, which I ran for many years and currently serve as chief investment officer for the Terry Foundation. What we do is provide scholarships to needy uh, kids to go to college in Texas. And we, we provided uh, thousands of, of kids the opportunity to, to go to college uh, debt-free and, and, and get a degree. And it, it, it's, it's been a, a really uh, important thing to me. I was just delighted to be able to, to help that mission along. Can you tell me a little bit more about the foundation, kind of where it came from, just, just generally speaking, and maybe a little bit about the founder? Uh, the guy I worked for at uh, one of my main clients at the law firm, actually, was a guy named Howard Terry. And Mr. Terry had grown up as a poor kid in, up in a little town called Cameron in, in Texas. And he went to the University of Texas on a football scholarship, and it changed his life. And he always remembered that. So when he did very well in business, eventually he started looking around, trying to figure out what he wanted to do in terms of a charitable, uh, you know, gift. And he always believed in giving back. And he, he, he thought about it with his wife. And they discussed it and they said, you know, the thing that changed my life was that football scholarship, that, that opportunity that it gave me to get out of that little town and do something different. And he said, what if we could do that for a whole bunch of people? And so they basically took care of all their kids and grandkids with trusts and put the entirety of their family wealth 
into the Terry Foundation. And all they do, uh, all the foundation does is provide scholarships to uh, needy Texas students. Started in 1986, the first scholarships were actually made in 1987. And since that time, we've given away over $300 million in college scholarships to thousands of Texas kids at universities all across the state. And it's, it's, it's been amazing to, to see that happen. The Terry Foundation selects uh, scholarship students based on a particular uh, mechanism that we've arrived at over the years. And it, it's kind of interesting. Mr. Terry had gotten his scholarship in 1930s uh, by actually interviewing with the University of Texas football coach in a 30-minute interview in, in Austin. And we kind of adopted that format. So we actually personally interview every student that we're going to consider taking in to our scholarship program. And they're interviewed by current Terry scholars. They're interviewed by our graduates. They're interviewed by you know, members of the community that, that help us with these things. But it, it's, a, it's a very important thing. And we really believe that you can't know how hard somebody's going to work by looking at test scores. You've got to actually talk to the people. You've got to, got to look them in the eye and, and try to really assess a lot of different things that you wouldn't get by just looking at paper. And we found over the years that our students do really, really well. They, they do better than the average student at the university. And even though a lot of them come from very disadvantaged backgrounds, they graduate in very high numbers and go on to be very, very successful. And we're convinced that part of the reason that they are successful is that we have this in-person interview. One of the most powerful messages that comes out of the storytelling craft is that you can tell people all day long why you do something, but if you really want them to understand, you have to show them. And, you know, you, you could, you know, Mr. Terry could sit there and you could sit there and preach all day long that it's important to go to college. It's important to go to college. But when you see the results that you get from the efforts, both physical and financial, emotional and so on, that's showing people why this matters. Um, and I, I mean, to me, that that's what you celebrate. That That's the reason that the existence of this foundation is so important. It's not just the money. It's the fact that you enable people that otherwise wouldn't have a chance. It, it gives them the chance to prove that the fact that I don't have as much money as you doesn't make me any less of a person or any, any less valuable of a citizen as you are. And, I, you know, you can't put a price on that. That's right. You can look at people's tax returns and figure out whether they're needy or not. And you can look at their transcript and figure out the grades. But you, to figure out whether they are going to be leaders of the community, which is one of our, our criteria, you have to talk to them. So that's an impressive story, and I thank you for sharing it with us. So let me just kind of recap. So you got out of school with degrees in economics, you got a law degree, and then you joined the foundation, the Terry Foundation, which you're still doing today. But you have another career, which I find really interesting because you and I share this one. Tell me a little bit about your writing. I've always been interested in writing and always been interested in researching, and I, I guess that's one of the things that attracted me uh, to a legal career at first was the ability to research and write. But I've always been interested in history primarily. And so when I was studying economics, I was usually studying economic history. When I studied law, I, I was studying legal history and very interested in that. And you know, growing up, growing up in Midland where we where we grew up, there wasn't a whole lot of history. It was very little. It was out on the frontier, and and you know, there were 
Native Americans and settlers, and they had conflict between themselves, but not a whole lot was going on there. Uh, but I had always been interested from a very early age in, in military history and particularly the Civil War. So when I, I got the opportunity to really start researching and doing something on it, I kind of gravitated over to Civil War history. And in particular, I started with what I knew, which was we, we had a weekend place down in Galveston, Texas, which is about 60 miles uh, south of Houston. And I knew that some Civil War things had happened down there, but I, I didn't know much about it. And so I, I went to the library and I asked for, I said, can you give me a book about the Civil War in Galveston? And they said, there's not one. And I said, there's not one? And so I said, well, you know, surely somebody will write one. So I waited for about three or four years and nobody wrote anything about it. And so I said, well, it's time for me to do it. And so about five years later, I turned out my first book uh, with the University of Texas Press on the Battle of Galveston and the Civil War as it happened in Galveston. You know, as a writer, writing one thing is like contagious disease because researching something and writing one book just leads you down the line to, to another book or two. I've, I've got four in the hamper right now. So the Galveston book was, was interesting, and I, I got interested when I was doing that in some of the people that were involved in that battle. And the, one of the men that was involved in it was an Irish saloon keeper in Houston, and he had gone over and been in part of another battle at Sabine Pass, which Jefferson Davis called the most amazing victory in all of military history, in which basically this this Irish saloon keeper, Dick Dowling, and 41 of his best customers, basically, defeated an entire Union expedition of five to 6,000 men and sent them packing. You know, this was one of the most amazing victories of the war, but there hadn't been a detailed history written about it. And so I wrote that history book. Well, in the course of that, I got interested in some of the boats that were involved in the battle. And that led to another book on Civil War Marines and, and boats. And in the course of doing that, yeah, again, I'd always been interested in Galveston and gave lots of tours down there. I've probably given more tours of Texas battlefields than, than anybody, uh, but certainly on the Civil War side. And I would always take people by this one parking lot and say something remarkable happened in this parking lot. And there was no sign or anything about it. And I would say, this is where Juneteenth originated, the celebration of emancipation that, you know, now has become a national holiday. And for years, I would get kind of puzzled looks from a lot of people who didn't know what that was or why it was important or anything like that. And so only in the recent years has it really kind of become the event nationally, at least, that it really was destined to be. And I have been writing a book and researching on Juneteenth for, I would say, close to 40 years. And just by coincidence, my book actually got approved and got published about a month before the national holiday was declared. You can just imagine how crazy that was having a book, the only scholarly history of that event come out right about that time. It was just a, a, a crazy period of time uh, for me, you know, because again, I, I write on things that some people would say are pretty esoteric. And yet this thing, you know, it was all you could all you could see on on radio and TV and and uh, newspapers for a long period there. And I think what's particularly interesting about Juneteenth is that it's sort of one of those historical curiosities that people, you know, a lot of people know the name, but they don't really know what it is. They, you know, they think it's sort of a recent thing that got made up or 
you know, a, a late recognition of an early event or whatever. And what's so interesting about it to me, of course, is that if you, and you point this out in the book, if you, if you read the sort of formation documents of, of the event, it didn't really change a whole lot in terms of how people should be treated. You know, basically, you know, stay in the job you've got. You're lucky to have a job, even though you've been emancipated. You know, don't, you know, don't hit the road. Just hang around. You know, you've, you're, you're there to stay. And I think that what made the book to me so powerful and so interesting, Ed, was that you really did a good job of yanking it apart and and kind of displaying to people sort of the evolution of what it really meant and the implications of it. And to me, that's what makes history so powerful. You know, to teach history in a way that says, well, this happened and then this happened and that caused this to happen, which caused this to happen. There's no linkage there. Nobody's going to remember that. But when you tell the story behind it, that's when it becomes real for people. And that's what you did in the book really, really beautifully. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I, I think the interesting question that that I get asked all the time about Juneteenth, it, it, and it's it's a natural question, is why did this become sort of the national date that we're going to celebrate for emancipation? And, and the answer I, I give is that there is no natural holiday for emancipation. Abraham Lincoln as president had declared you know, emancipation in the fall of 1862, but it was only effective on January 1 of 1863. And when he did it then, again, it was only affecting people that were in the Confederate states. So he was freeing people that he had really no direct power to free. So people would say, well, why don't, why did the former slaves choose to why why didn't they choose to celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation? And my answer is because Really, as far as they were concerned, that was sort of an empty document. Abraham Lincoln had signed something in Washington, but when he signed that paper in January of 1863, the people living here in Texas, it was completely ineffective as far as actually freeing them. So when Gordon Granger comes to Galveston on June 19th of 1865, and this this paper comes out, and again, it like you say, the wording of the paper is really kind of embarrassing in many ways. It's not very well written, most of it. It has a bad tone if you're looking at it from the standpoint of liberation. But what happens is because the way the document was worded and the way it was distributed all across the state, the newspapers and handbills and things like that, it ends up being the thing that is read to these people, that is the signal for their immediate liberation. So you could say the Emancipation Proclamation said people were free, but the Juneteenth order made people free. It was the actual thing that freed them. And so long, long, long after the war and after emancipation, these folks were interviewed in many cases. They're a lot of 80 years old, but they could remember it was like it was yesterday. And almost a huge number of these people said that they remembered like it was yesterday, the day the Freedom Paper was read to them, the Freedom Paper. And sometimes they would say the long paper, meaning the newspaper. Sometimes they would say just the small paper, which was the probably the order on a handbill. But it's, it's not surprising to me when you look at it that way, that they chose to, to celebrate the thing that really mattered to them was, which was the document that made them free on that moment. And they, 
it, would, it happened at different days, different times. And so you couldn't really pick anything like that. And so what they chose to celebrate was the date that the Freedom Paper was issued in Galveston. And that, that message of let's ignore all what the Congress and the courts and all these sort of things are saying, what really made people free? And the last large intact body of enslaved people in the Confederacy was freed fairly soon after uh, the issuance of this order. I want to inject a question here that's related, and and we you don't have to answer it now. We can think about it and maybe do it at the end. But earlier we were talking about phrases and things that speak to military decisions and business decisions, and, and I made that comment about you know those that fail to heed the lessons of history. With the context that a lot of the listeners of this podcast are students, teachers, professors and a lot of business people as well, obviously, but focusing on those first few. In your mind, why is it important to have at least a basic understanding of history? I mean, what, is it, what does it do for us beyond the fact that it's interesting or enriching or whatever? I think it's important to study history, uh, not only because we need to know the, the background of you know, our country and, and our state and, and our, our community, but it also teaches, I think, everybody some very important lessons. And one of the reasons I like history particularly is going back and finding out why things turned out the way they did. Sometimes it was a decision that was made that was the right decision or the wrong decision. Sometimes it's something that just comes out of the blue, that there was a, a shock that the people were not prepared for. Sometimes it's an external event or an external person or, or force comes into play. But by learning how things happened and why they turned out the way they are, it helps you, number one, make the decisions that you think will be better so that if you if you see somebody who's made a mistake you can learn from that mistake and try not to do that the other thing i think it 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 does is it prepares you for the whole host of things that can go wrong with a plan so if 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 you if we studied a civil war battle and we saw that this guy made a mistake and it was because of something he didn't know you would say to yourself, so if I'm ever in that position, I have to make a decision. I have to take into account not only what I see right in front of me, but maybe think about some things that I don't see and I don't know are coming. You have to prepare for a lot of different things. And I, and I, I think that studying history is one way to enable you to make better decisions, to enable you to avoid making bad decisions. And it, it, it is important to see how things are connected. Ed, you've written a lot. Is there a book, one book in particular, that you're most proud of? I think the book I'm the proudest of is is one that was was just an absolute thing of chance. I had been talking to a friend of mine, and he said that he had run into a collection of hand-drawn pictures in the Annapolis Naval Academy Library of, of some different boats and things, and he thought some of them involved Texas. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And then I got them and started looking at them and, and it turned out there were like 85 of these beautifully done hand-drawn drawings. And something about it just kind of clicked in my memory. I said, wait a minute, that's something odd about that. And then I looked and, and back in my notes when I was doing the Galveston book, and there was a, a Civil War Marine, a Union Marine, 
who had been captured at the Battle of Sabine Pass, and he had kept this diary, and he was from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He was a printer, just an incredibly articulate, funny young man who had kept this diary of his entire career, and it turned out he had been on one of the boats that was in this collection of drawings. And so I started comparing those things, and I, and I, I gradually figured out that, well, what I have, it's almost like a slideshow of the Civil War narrated by a guy who was there. And so combining the pictures and this diary, and then I edited both of them, put in a bunch of notes and everything, and, and that book became The Southern Journey of a Civil War Marine, and uh, National Public Radio picked it up. We did, did some interviews on it and so forth. It was just a fascinating thing. And I, I think, to me, that's the kind of book that is just accidental. It doesn't happen very often. I mean, if I hadn't written the book on the Battle of Galveston, eventually somebody else would have. If, if I hadn't written the book on Sabine Pass, eventually somebody else would have. If I didn't write the book on Juneteenth, a whole bunch of people would have written that book. But this book, because of the way it was making this random connection between a diary that had been published in the Galveston newspaper uh, from a prisoner of war and these beautiful drawings that were in the Annapolis Naval Academy Library, those two things kind of needed to get together. And I'm not sure that anybody else would have done that. And so I guess I'm, from a historical standpoint, I'm, I'm proudest of having combined those things and, and then having the, uh, the press put it out in, in what I think turned out to be a very beautiful uh, version. You know, when I first started writing and got interested in being a writer, one of my heroes was, and, and to a certain extent still is, uh, a broadcaster on CBS named Charles Kuralt. I'm sure you know who he is. And, and he used to do this show in the morning on Sunday called Sunday Mornings, where he would basically, CBS came to him one day and said, okay, Charlie, here's a motorhome, a film crew, and an unlimited budget. Just go drive around and find things to write stories about. And so he did. And, and of course, he did these amazing stories for the longest time. And one of them, he was talking to some people, and it was in Texas. That's what reminded me of it. And during that interview, somebody asked him, how do you describe your own job? What do you tell people you do in this wandering nomadic thing that you do? And he smiled and he said, my job is to find extraordinary things in ordinary people. And that, that never left me. And I thought, Everybody has a story to tell if you'll just let them tell it. And everybody has a story worth hearing if you're willing to go look for it. And, you know, here is this inconsequential, no-name guy from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a printer for crying out loud, who, you know, if you asked him, he, I have no story. I mean, I just want to go home. And yet, look at the story you uncovered. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. And now we know the story behind the art that is part of that, you know, so, you know, figurative hats off to you. But one of the interesting things about that Civil War Marine book was because this is unfiltered, this is basically his diary. It, it's, it's not something that was written after the war trying to glamorize what he was doing. It wasn't some thing trying to get him elected to some political office. It was his honest on the spot kind of reactions. And there would be things like they'd have a battle and it would be take up maybe a page in the diary. But then when they, when they stopped the spirit ration, which means they stopped issuing basically the rum ration to the, to the sailors there, they, they just said this day, this is ended. 
he went on for pages and pages about the evils of stopping the spirit ration and why this was such a bad idea. And when are they going to fix this? This needs to be this needs to be immediately addressed. And so again, this was the this was what was really getting his attention. He was sure he was endangering his life. Sure, he was down here trying to fight for the cause of his country. But on this particular day, what he's really worried about is when am I going to get my rum? You know, but this this is this is the thing that that uh, was a big concern to him. And you, you kind of sympathize with that, and you kind of understand uh, it's a little more candid than the typical memoir. We share another interest, oddly enough, after being separated for so many years, and that is scuba diving. But you've got some really interesting directions with, uh, with your scuba stuff. Tell me a little bit about some of the projects you've been involved in that have involved having your head under the water. I've been scuba diving for a lot, a lot of years. In fact, I, I guess uh, I got my original card from the YMCA in the, in the 1970s. And and uh, my, my real claim to fame in scuba diving for many years was that uh, when I was in Hawaii one time, I went scuba diving with, and my buddy was, was uh, Jerry Garcia on a night dive. So that was kind of a funny thing. In the course of doing these Civil War things, I, I got interested in a bunch of boats and, and particularly naval things, because most of the Civil War battles around here involved ships versus shore, usually Confederate forts on the shore and, and, and Union shipping and blockading. And we have a lot of wrecks up here uh, off the coast or even in the bay. And so because of my historical interest, I became project historian on a number of these, these shipwrecks. And, and my, my responsibility was basically to help with the historical context of the wreck. And, uh, you know, if, if things came up, we would try to find out what they were and how they were used and, and the story behind them, and particularly if there were any any personal things. And so I've worked on a number of, of uh, shipwrecks there and haven't done a whole lot of scuba diving myself on them just because the conditions in, in the areas where we're in down here are just, you can't see your hand in front of your face. But uh, I have done a lot of work uh, on the nautical side and and I'm, I'm uh, a Marine steward for the Texas uh, Historical Commission and help investigate wrecks and, and uh, try to preserve the nautical history of Texas uh, through that activity. Have all of the wrecks been left in situ or have you pulled any of them out of the water? The wreck that we have excavated the most is a, a steamboat called the, uh, the Westfield. And the Westfield, just as it happened, was right in the middle of the Texas City Channel that was going to be widened. And so when they, they needed to move that out of the way, uh, the, the Corps of Engineers and a big task force of a, a bunch of different people got together and they raised basically everything we could get that was of any substance off that wreck, conserved it, and it's now in a museum in Texas City. And that included, uh, you know, a nine-inch Dahlgren cannon, which was a huge thing that was there and, and uh, a lot of different pieces of artillery, cannonballs and, and shells and things. And uh, it, it's just the amazing the amount of, of, of things that came off this ship and were raised and conserved and, and put in this museum. And it, it's one of the only things like that in the country. The, the boat started off as a Staten Island ferry boat, and then it was converted into a gunboat. Put armor on the sides and, and put you know, guns all over it and everything. And it's the, the fighting ferry boats, there were actually two, two of them at uh, the Battle of Galveston. And, and they did pretty well, but again, this one had a had a bad habit of going aground at bad times. And so in the middle of the night during the Battle of Galveston, it ran aground 
and the uh, captain decided to blow it up to keep it out of the Confederate hands. And it's kind of like the Roadrunner cartoon. He lit the fuse and apparently he went away and it didn't go off. So he went back to see what was wrong. And then it blew up and killed him and, and a dozen of his men. And that was the, the end of the USS Westfield and, until it was excavated and now is in a museum here in Texas. And we have a, we're, we're right on Lake Champlain and we have a number of, uh, a number of wrecks here as well that are pretty interesting. None of, none of them, well, actually that's not true. I'm not going to say none, but the most accessible of them are uh, commercial vessels that went down. One in particular, which is very interesting, it's called the Horse Ferry and it's in about uh, maybe 40 feet of water or so, not too far from the marina, the Burlington waterfront. And, um, it took lumber back and forth across Lake Champlain from New York to Vermont and vice versa. And the way it was powered was that it had a, this big turntable on the deck that was about maybe 30 feet in diameter. And they had a team of horses that walked on the turntable. And by walking on it, they turned the wheel, the turntable, which in turn had shafts on it that turned the big side paddles on either side of it. And that's what actually got it back and forth across the, the lake. And ultimately it caught fire and sank and all the, everybody got off, including the horses, but it sank upright uh, on the bottom. And it's a really cool dive because obviously they don't want you to drop an anchor anywhere near it. So they have these big yellow buoys that you clip onto and then you go down the buoy line and there's a sign stuck in the ground, just like any other historical marker that says, you know, welcome to the horse ferry. The horse ferry was operational between these years and it sank in 1868 and everybody got ashore and it's that way. And it's the coolest thing. They have, um, you know, what a toilet float looks like in the, you know, like a floating ball with a stick. So imagine two rows of toilet bowls, like going off into the distance, and you just swim between these two rows of toilet floats, and suddenly you you literally bump into the keel of the vessel, <laughs> and they don't want you touching it because, as you can imagine, the wood is it's like gelatin. I mean, it's you've got to be very careful around it. And they're worried about zebra mussels, which are having quite an impact up here. But, you know, if you know what you're doing and you've got good buoyancy control, you can flip upside down, take a good deep breath, position yourself over one of the hold hatches, exhale and sink about halfway down into the thing. And then, you know, those of us that know what, our do know what we're doing can kind of kick our feet and go in a full 360 with our light and see the inside of the ship and then inhale and can rise back up again without touching anything. It's, it is an amazing feeling to be close to a big wreck like that. I mean, it's it's the weirdest thing yet. I've always found it to be at the same time fascinating, terrifying, because it's such a big thing on the bottom. It's not supposed to be there. Interesting and just spewing questions in my head left and right without stopping. I just, I love it. I just love it. Probably the most interesting wreck I've ever went to was a wreck of the USS Hatteras. And this was a, a ship that was about sunk about 25 miles off of Galveston. And the, the famous commerce raider, uh, the Confederate commerce raider, the Alabama, came just out of the blue, literally in this case, lured the Hatteras off and then sunk her in a battle that took about less than 15 minutes. And I'd always I'd, I'd written about this battle. Again, it's one of the most important uh, you know, ship-on-ship -ship encounters of, of the Civil War. And I'd written about it for years, but I had never actually been out there. And so they, they had an expedition to go out there and, and uh, document it with a bunch of laser LIDAR type things in the, in the uh, ocean around it. So I went out there as, as uh, kind of the project historian. 
And it was, it was fun to me just to go out to a wreck that I knew so much about. And this was, this was probably the first iron-hulled warship ever to be sunk in, in warfare. And it was one of the first battles between two steamers, because that was, again, fairly new technology going into the Civil War. So it, it was a very interesting thing to see. And then, you know, again, the visibility there was terrible. You couldn't hardly see anything. And they put these LIDAR things all around it, put these massive computers in operation and, and use the lasers. And then by the end of it, uh, today, you can see that shipwreck in, in 3D and, and you know, virtual reality, you can actually say, you know, you fly right through it and turn around and, and see what's out there. And it, it was pretty remarkable. The funny thing about that, that trip to me was I had a picture of, it was called a carte de visite, a CDV, of a guy named uh, Homer Blake, who was the captain of the Hatteras that was sunk there. And it, it was his, it was an actual picture of him from the Civil War. And so I brought it out there and I happened to make some funny comment to one of the newspaper reporters about, you know, this is the first time that Captain Blake's been back here since 1863. You know, he was here 15 minutes, his ship sank, and then he went away to Jamaica. It's the first time he's been back here. Newspaper reporter liked that so much that I was on the front page of the USA Today holding this picture at, at the wreck site of the, of the Hatteras. Let, let me ask you a, a kind of a related question, high level now. How do you do your research? And let me tell you why I'm asking. This is something that comes up a lot with students when they hear these podcasts, because as you know, I, I talk about all kinds of weird things. And they're always saying to me, how did you even learn about that? So, so you know, Ed finds a topic that's interesting to him, and then he dives down the rabbit hole that, that will ultimately lead to the creation of a book. Can you give me kind of a high-level view of how do you, A, run across the themes or the topics that you're interested in, and then as you pursue the content that will ultimately be turned into a book, how do you do that? In any historical uh, research and, and writing project, I think you have to start with the original sources. So if I'm looking, say I'm interested in a particular battle, the first thing I'll do is go and get the official reports that were filed by the commander's at the time of or shortly after the battle. And I start keeping a, a log of that. And it, my, my closet is filled with notebooks of, that I've kept over the years of things with actual firsthand accounts. So I'll get the firsthand accounts of the officers. Then I will research in archives all across the country, sometimes all across the world actually, to try and find related things that were letters or diaries or maps or pictures things like that, that fit into the puzzle. And so you start assembling the puzzle. What I don't do is look at, say, a book on a particular battle, because that has already a bunch of people's thoughts on it. And, you know, you don't know whether they're right. It's, it's not the original stuff. You've got to start with the original sources. And so to me, and another thing I, I don't think you could do, I don't think it's really possible to write history without actually going to the place where the, where the history took place. I, I can tell you that in, in, in the battlefields I study, uh, if you had never gone to Sabine Pass, you would not understand the situation down there. If you'd never gone to Galveston and seen the buildings that were there and that are still there today and, and their location in relation to the, the harbor, you, you couldn't understand what was going on there. So I think you have to really put boots on the ground and 
go back to the original sources and combine that with uh, everything you can find out in, in related things all, all across the country to really get a picture of something accurately. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.